Well, good morning, friends. It's so good to see you this morning. Happy Easter once again. He is risen. (laughs) You all look sharp. And welcome to everyone watching online, at home, YouTube, Facebook. We wish you could be with us. I know you do too. I hope you put on your Easter best as you watch at home. Everyone in the room looks fabulous as well. Uh, Would you join me, friends, as we open with the word of prayer today? Jesus, we ask that you would come and speak to us today. We ask that our eyes would be opened. We ask that our hearts would be opened. We pray that even on this Easter morning, we would see you with fresh eyes, that the hope of resurrection would explode in our hearts today. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. There is a highway that goes through a mountain. Coloradans know it well. Skiers know it better. 60 miles west of Denver, on I-70, there is the Eisenhower Tunnel. You may be familiar with it, but you may not know that it is the highest vehicular tunnel in the world. At 11,000 miles above sea level, approximately 1.7 miles long, 26 feet wide in each direction. Yeah, at 1.7 miles, it's too long to hold your breath through. And play that hold your breath game through the tunnel. Eisenhower took five years to build before they built the other side, John, the Johnson Tunnel. It was supposed to take three years, that's what they told the public, but winters in Colorado and something about the harsh rock had something to say about that. But every time we come out on the other side of Eisenhower, I'm always just stunned by it. Because up until that moment, you feel like you're close to the mountains, but as soon as you emerge, you're like, oh my gosh, we're, we're, look, at it's right here. And it's breathtaking, not just because there's a lack of oxygen, but because the view is stunning. The view is stunning. And then it hits you, we just went through a mountain. Like if Lewis and Clark could see us now. And you think about all the pioneers and all of the dream, westward dreams that stopped at the Rockies. People who had all kinds of goals, good intentions. There's, there are fewer old denominational churches west of the Rockies because even missionaries, they got to the Rockies and they said, yeah, let's just stop right here. There's something about a mountain that has its way of imposing its will on you. And yet, today where there was a mountain, there is now a highway. If only Isaiah could see us now. What do we do when we hit dead ends in life? What do we do when we run into a massive mountain that stands in the path of where we thought we were heading, that stands in the way of where we wanted to go? Here we are, Easter 2021. We're thanking God that we're in a room with other people, for many of you, for all of you here. Last Easter was so different And so strange. And yet, if we're honest, we're still facing some dead ends of our own. The first Easter was no different. The people of God had waited with expectation for God to come. If you've been watching or attending New Life Downtown uh, the last several months, you've journeyed with us through the, the series that we did called Everyday Prophets. And the prophets take us right to the brink of expectation. They see the people of God go through exile in Babylon. They, they see the people of God being scattered by the Assyrians. 
They see the people of God finally return, rebuild the temple, hope that everything will go okay. And then they're faced with 400 years of silence. Just when you thought it was going to get good, it went dark. 400 years of silence. And then one day, this person appears on the scene. Jesus of Nazareth whispers about him being a carpenter's son, but he went about doing good and healing the sick and doing deeds of power. And people said, well, has another prophet finally come? Is God speaking? He teaches with authority. Hopes began to rise. Joy began to return. Children are dancing in the streets. Women are following him. The hungry are being fed. And one day, it comes crashing down. On a Friday afternoon, all of their hopes died with the crucified Messiah on the cross. It was the dead end of all dead ends. Luke 24, verses 13 through 17, tells us one of the stories, one of the Easter morning stories. And by the way, if you're listening this morning and you're thinking, why are there so many different Easter stories? Why do the gospel writers all give us different angles on this? And, and who was actually first to the tomb? And who saw him? Was it angels? Was it women? Was it, uh, what, what's the chronology of this? And maybe if you've wondered that, you've thought, doesn't this sort of shaken or weaken the credibility of these stories? Actually, people who are experts in eyewitness accounts tell us that when eyewitness accounts are fuzzy and the chronologies don't always line up, that's when you know the eyewitness accounts are true. That in fact, when someone's story is too clean and they know exactly what time and all this stuff, that's when they start to say, you're making that up. You've been coached. You were rehearsing this. But when you get stories that are like, you know, even when, when you're trying to recall an accident, was the car turning left or turning right? Was it a red car? Was it a yellow car? Was it a truck? Was it a Ford or a Chevy? That's the real question. But these, the Gospels give us multiple stories as a way of saying these are eyewitness accounts and we're just going to record it all together here. And Luke 24 verse 13 tells us a story of two disciples after the resurrection who didn't know what had happened quite yet. On that same day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. And while they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on the journey. And they were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you talking about as you walk along? And they stopped. Their faces were downcast. They stopped. And their faces were downcast. This scene to me seems so appropriate to the moment that we've been living through. Okay, we made it. Here we are. Easter 2021 feels a lot better than Easter 2020. But how many of us have been stopped, dead in our tracks, with faces downcast? How many of us have come actually across our own dead ends? Maybe you've lost jobs this year. Maybe you've changed jobs. Maybe you've had to be creative about your business. Maybe you've had to figure out how in the world as a single parent you're going to take care of kids and work and homeschool and all of the stuff you didn't plan on doing. Some of you have experienced fractures in relationships this year. Some of you have experienced pain this year. When we think about all the events that happened from protests about racial injustice, we have learned and discovered 
that for many of our brothers and sisters who are African Americans, there were events that happened this year that said, whoa, there's a profound pain and trauma and injustice. For many of our brothers and sisters who are Asian Americans, experiencing hates and experiencing prejudice, living with a sense of fear, these and many more are all reasons we've stopped with faces downcast. And the thing I want you to catch is they're walking away from Jerusalem. This may, be, may not mean much to us, but Jerusalem for the people of God was the holy city. Like this was where it was supposed to happen. Jerusalem is the city of shalom, the city of peace, the city where God was going to put his joy and God was going to be revealed. If God was going to show up, it was going to be there. And yet they're walking away from Jerusalem sad. It's one thing to walk toward Jerusalem sad, but you're thinking once we get there, right? Once we get there, right? But they've already been there. This is like walking away from church and saying, I don't know. They're walking away from the place where they had hoped to meet with God. This may be your story or it may be the story of the people that are close to you. There are people who have walked away from church this year. People who've walked away from that place of hope. They thought, I thought Christians were going to be different. I thought Christians were going to be better. But all of a sudden, I'm just... I'm walking away sad. And who can blame them when there have been scandals with evangelicals this year? And all of a sudden we have people who are saying, I, I, I don't know if I need this. I'm walking away and I'm walking away sad. But this morning, on this Easter morning, I want you to see that there is a Savior. And there is a Savior whose very presence means good news. And there's three things in this text that I want you to see. And the first is found in verse 15. It says, while they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. This is amazing to me because Jesus has been raised from the dead. I mean, if you or I had been raised from the dead, been given a glorified new body, you would have been like, woohoo, hey everyone, come see how good I look. <laughs> I'm going to insta story this right here. I'm going to stay here and set up a tent and we're going to do revival meetings and y'all are going to come to me. But Jesus is not that kind of savior. He's not the kind of savior that says, I'm going to stand over here in my glory and, I, and you need to come find me. Jesus is the savior who finds you. He's the savior who finds you. And that's the first thing. That's the first thing I want you to see. There is a Savior who joins us on the journey, who joins us. This is Jesus who in all of his post-resurrection glory could have dazzled the world, but instead decided to come incognito and find some followers who were disillusioned, find some followers who were downcast. Maybe you're sitting here on this Easter morning and you're thinking, well, Easter's great if you're into all of that stuff, but I'm actually on the brink. I don't really know. Frankly, I haven't been hurt by the church. I'm a little bit meh about all this stuff. And I'm just, I want to tell you, that's exactly who Jesus joins on the journey. That's exactly who Jesus is. He's not coming for the ones who are all like, I'm ready. I never doubted, Lord. We always knew you'd come back. 
He's like, where are the ones who are disillusioned? Where are the ones who are disappointed? Where are the ones who thought the whole world fell apart? I'm going to go join them on their journey. For some of you today, that may not be where you are at, but you're praying for others who are there. And you're wondering, God, can they find you? I want to tell you, Jesus is going to find them. Jesus is going to join us on the journey. And then as the story goes on, verse 18, it says, The one named Cleopas replied, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who is unaware of the things that have taken place over the last few days? Like, were you born yesterday? Jesus is like, hmm. (laughs) He said to them, what things? I love this. What things? What are you talking about? If you've gone through the Emotionally Healthy courses, if you've seen counselors, if you've done some work in reading about trying to figure out how to grow towards a place of health, you will have learned probably some version of this tool or this practice where when you're feeling profound feelings, particularly the ones of anger or sadness, you will have learned a tool to, 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 to begin to stop and to say, whoa, 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 what story am I telling myself? Right? Some of you've learned that too. What's the story I'm telling myself? And a trivial example, you text a friend, what are you doing? They don't reply. And you're like, oh, I see how it is. Guess they moved on from me. That's the story you're telling yourself, okay? As human beings, we know events, but we can't live with events. We have to have meaning. So we supply a narrative. We don't ask someone else to tell us the story. We'll supply the story. And so very often in counseling, they'll say, could you just just stop for a moment? You told me about this and you told me about this, but I just want to, what's the story you're telling yourself? And I have a hunch that when Jesus says, what things... He wants to hear from these disappointed disciples, what's the story you're telling yourself right now? What's the story you're saying? And they go ahead and answer, verse 19, they said to him, well, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as the prophet. So far, so far, they're telling you facts. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Jesus is like, right, right, those are all the facts. Tell me the story you're telling yourself. And then they go on. This is the key phrase. We had hoped. Somebody say that phrase. We had hoped. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. And all these things happened three days ago. And then they go on and they say, but there's more. Some women from our group have left us stunned. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. And they came to us saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who told them he is alive. Side note, this is one of the other reasons why we trust these eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of the Gospels. In the first century, women were not, their testimony was not accepted in the, in the courts as reliable testimony. If you wanted to fabricate a story about a resurrected Messiah, you wouldn't have women be the first witnesses. Unless it was true. Unless Jesus decided that the first ones who would see him and the ones who would testify him and the first preachers of the resurrection would be women. That's what Jesus decided. And it says, but some of us who some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found things just as the women said, but they didn't see him. The story they were telling themselves was a story of abandonment, 
God must have forgotten us. God must not have come through on his promise. God must not be reliable. God must not be happy with us. God must not be pleased with us. Maybe we've not been righteous enough. Maybe we haven't been obedient enough. Friends, what's the story you're telling yourself on this Easter morning? Well, I, you know, I guess I'm here. I sort of, I'm not ready to say I don't believe, but ah, does God want me? Does God need me? Does God love me? What does God think of me? Is God really here in my pain, in my questions, in my doubts? And listen to what Jesus does. Verse 25, and Jesus said to them, you foolish people, your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Pause here for a moment. Some of you on this Easter morning, maybe you're not as familiar with the scriptures and you're like the Christ. I mean, it just goes right past you. Christ was not Jesus's last name. His parents were not Joseph and Mary Christ from a sweet little town in Bethlehem with little baby Jesus Christ. Christ was a title. It was an honorary, honorific title. It means the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is why it's significant. He says, look, let me, let me tell you, wasn't it necessary that the anointed, chosen, saving king would suffer all these things? And they're saying, We've never heard the story that way. A king who would suffer, a king who would be killed. And then he says, and then he interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through the prophets. Where's the podcast of that? But here's what I want you to see this morning. Not only is there a savior who joins us on the journey, but there is a savior who tells us a truer story who tells us a truer story. See, it's good and necessary that you name the story that you're telling yourself, but as followers of Jesus, at some point you gotta say, but what is God, what's the story God's telling me about myself? What's the truer and better story about who I actually am? What's the truer and better story about my identity? See, Jesus is telling them a story about a king who actually suffered with them and for them. For anyone who's ever experienced pain, the story that you tell yourself very easily is to say, God doesn't care. God's distant. God's way up there, and he's like, hope you figure that out. When you do, come see me on Sunday. Praying for you. And Jesus says, can I retell the scriptures to you? Can I tell you the scriptures as a story of a God whose heart broke so deeply for your pain that he actually stepped into space and time and took on human flesh and suffered and wept and was betrayed and beaten and died so that in your suffering, you are never alone. In your suffering, you are never alone. And not just suffering with you, but suffering for you. Isn't it amazing that Jesus retells the story of Scripture as the story of a suffering Messiah? I imagine that that's not all he said. I imagine that Jesus told them the story and reminded them how Genesis begins. 
Sometimes a little bit of knowledge is dangerous, and for many Americans, the little bit of knowledge that we have about church and religion is that there's an angry God who wants to tell you that you've messed up and that you're a dirty, rotten sinner. But did you know the Bible doesn't begin with Genesis 1, in the beginning, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. (laughs) Step one, you're terrible. (laughs) Did you know that the Bible opens with, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth? And when he put stars in the sky, he called it good. And when he put birds in the air, he called it good. And when he made male and female, he made them in his image. And he called them very good. Do you know that there is a father in heaven who looks at you and says, I made you very good. Very good. And yes, sin is part of the story. And yes, sin distorts the image. And yes, sin has bent us in different ways. But the story goes on and what the creator designed, the redeemer completed. And so Jesus has rescued us and all who are in Christ, there's no longer any condemnation. And Paul says we're seated with Christ, raised with Christ, blessed with every spiritual blessing who God who purposed from the beginning to rescue us, Ephesians 1 says. The story has a good beginning, and the story has a glorious ending. It has a glorious ending. This is the other thing about resurrection. Some people say, some skeptics say, well, we weren't these Christians making up mythologies about Jesus, and they were just sort of copying Roman mythologies, because Rome had Caesars that died, and they made up stories of their souls being carried to heaven, and they were divinized after death. That's not what the followers of Jesus said. If they wanted to say he was divinized after death, they would have said that. If they wanted to say that they saw a soul flying up to the heavens like a star or a comet, they would have said that. They didn't say that. You know what they told? They told stories about Jesus appearing in locked rooms and then saying, don't be afraid. I'm like, well, stop scaring me then. (laughs) And they told stories about Jesus telling Thomas to put his hands on his wounds and scars. And they told stories about Jesus showing up by the shores of the Sea of Galilee and having breakfast with his disciples, eating, drinking wounds, scars, but also appearing and disappearing. Something's the same, something's different. They couldn't make sense of it. They weren't telling stories about a soul that went flying up to the heavens like a star in the sky. They were telling the story of something surprising, of a God who had resurrected the Son of God. And what that means for us is that the end of the story is glorious. It means that the Christian hope is not a story of hang in there, one day you'll fly away. The Christian hope says to us, even if the worst happens, God will raise you from the dead. Even if the worst thing happens, God will raise you from the dead. There's a savior who tells us a truer story. When our kids were little, really when our oldest was really little, someone gave us the brilliant advice to start a journaling to them and not just writing observations. We began by writing observations. You know, this is your favorite blankie. This is all, all the 10 things we had to do to get you back to sleep again for the 10th time at night. As they got older, it began to change and we began to write down attributes and things, personality things and 
Sometimes giftings and passions. I remember when Sophia, our oldest, who's 16 now, and when she was three or four, she'd stand on the dining room table with a spatula and pretend to lead us in worship. Don't think I haven't thought about that moment as she's been leading worship now. But we would write that in the journal. And Nora, we do the same thing. Jonas, we do the same thing. Jane, we're doing the same thing. And when Sophia and Nora turned, each of them, when they turned on their 13th birthday, we took them out for brunch and we let them read that journal for the first time. And we kept it. We were going to keep writing to it. We'll give it to them when they leave the house. But we gave it, we let them read it for the first time at 13 because we said, listen, in your teenage years, there's going to be a war for your identity. There's going to be a lot of voices that will try to tell you, oh, you're this, you're this, you should be this, you should do that, this is who you are. And we just wanted them to know we've been watching you from the very first breath you took. And we know who you are. We know what's in you. We know. But even if you don't have a journal like that or a parent like that, you have a heavenly father like that. You have a heavenly father like that. And I know the Bible doesn't read exactly like a story, but it is a drama with a good beginning and a glorious ending. And this is the truer story that Jesus tells us as we return to this moment, this passage in Luke verse 28. It says, when they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he was going on ahead. Jesus is full of comedy in this story. He's like joining them. What are you talking about? What's going on? Now he's all like, okay, see you later. Slow step slow step, you know, acted like he's going on ahead, but they urged him saying, stay with us. It's nearly evening and the day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them and he took a seat at the table and he took bread, blessed it, broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him, but then he disappeared from their sight. (laughs) And they said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scriptures to us? See, we read a story like this and it goes right by because if you were a guest in our home, if we we had you over for dinner, we wouldn't hesitate. If you offered to help in the kitchen, doing the dishes, we'd be like, come on, go ahead. But in Jewish culture, there were defined roles for the host and for the guest. And the guest does not give the blessing. The guest does not call the feast to order the host does that and very likely would have begun with that hebrew prayer that blessing over bread and over the meal barukata adonai alochenu melech haolam blessed are you o lord our god king of the universe giver of bread it would have been the host's job but it's the guest who does it the third thing I, the final thing i want you to see about the savior is that there is a savior who offers us radical hospitality. You might think, you might think that you are welcoming Jesus into your heart, but the truth is he's welcoming you into the kingdom. He's welcoming you into the kingdom. I mean, sometimes it sounds so precious, like, would you please just accept Jesus into your heart? Just please, you know, just let him into your heart. He's standing at the door knocking like a pathetic beggar or something. No, 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 no. When you say, Jesus, come on in, stay with us, he says, thank you. And now I'm about to offer you the banquet of bread that is living bread and wine that is living wine. I'm about to give you my body and my blood. I'm about to give you the feast of your life. A savior who offers us radical hospitality. Now I know to someone not familiar with 
These stories, it could sound strange. Bread and wine, body and blood, what? But what we're really saying is Jesus' life gives you life. Bread and wine, the images of nourishment and sustenance, the source of joy, it's his life that gives us life. There is a Savior who offers us radical hospitality. Maybe you find yourself this Easter morning downcast, at a dead end, disappointed, disillusioned, or maybe just in a fog with your eyes a little bit cloudier than normal. I get it. But our hope today is the Christ who was crucified and risen, who joins us on the journey, who tells us a better story, and who offers us radical hospitality.